0: A podcast 1 production. Hello everyone. This is your host Rosie Waterland and given the earth is a possible apocalypse right now, of course my <laughs> microphone cut out a little ways into this episode and there's a section where my sound is terrible. We're recording this before the US elections, so hopefully it's not because there's a hellfire right outside my door. Hopefully my mic cut out just because of silly nonsense and we're all fine. Everything's fine everything's fine (laughs) anyway it only lasts about I don't know I think what was it 10 minutes so sorry guys yeah my mic just cut out for a bit but then it gets better okay award-nominated podcast very professional (laughs) bye
1: Polish professional (laughs) are you ready yes
0: geez I feel like this episode has to be good because it's our first episode since being award-nominated Ooh. Oh shit, okay, we should sound professional. <laughs> uh, uh, um, podcast mm. Profesh. Mm-hmm. Take it away, my award nominated dulcet toned Adonis. <laughs>
1: okay, Polish professional, Polish professional. All right.
0: <laughs> Fatsbachura.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go, 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 <laughs> Hello, Gisters, and welcome back for another episode of Just The Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. Rosie, as you mentioned, we are nominated for uh-huh. a very fancy, prestigious <laughs> award.
0: Little old us. Oh, my God, you guys. we got to quickly cut to... Break in a nose, break. Breaking news. I got the scoop of cx extra, X-ray. X-ray We're about it. Breaking news. We've been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award. What? So we have been nominated for the 2020 Australian Podcast Awards Award for Best Entertainment Podcast. Ah! Uh, <gasps> us? What? Little, Little old us? You mean me? You mean Jacob? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I forgot the nominations were even being announced, so I didn't know till someone tagged me in it on Twitter, and I was so excited.
1: I wondered how you found out, because you rang me straight away while I was carving pumpkins, and I was very curious how you'd been notified. I was still in bed. There's the answer. Someone tagged you, and I actually haven't even asked you yet. Like, what does this mean?
0: It means we're super legit. It's like important podcast awards,
1: and when do we find out who's won?
0: I feel like I should know more about this. No, it's <laughs> no November no, the end of November. I think it's either oh shivers, November 21 or November 20 something. Mm-hmm. They announce the winners. It sucks that it's COVID because normally there's a very fancy awards ceremony, but this year it's going to be virtual, mm. you know, keeping people safe, etc. I love how people say like awards don't matter, people's lives matters matter and I'm like, but Awards matter. (laughs) Why do we do any of this if not for huge amounts of praise and trophies?
1: The pomp and the ceremony are the top priorities.
0: Maybe I should fly to Sydney. We should watch it together. I'll fly to Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, let's try and get podcast one to pay. Let's, let's put that out into the universe. Like the secret. (laughs) Yeah. So us and four other podcasts have been nominated for best entertainment podcast. It's us. This one called the convo Matt and Alex all day breakfast, the shameless girls. We're legit. Mm -hmm. And another great podcast called the wellness collective. So it's those. They're now our sworn mortal enemies. (laughs) (laughs) no
1: here we go battle to the death
0: I know so there's that one which is voted for by sort of industry leaders and podcast Wizards. Mm. But then there is also a Listener's Choice Award. So if you want to vote for us, you guys, to win the Listener's Choice Award, you can. And this is where I've been dreaming to do this. You know from 30 Rock what Jane Kukowski does about the People's Choice Awards? Yeah. That's the only one that matters <laughs> because that one's decided by the fans. <laughs> Now. Oh, you've practised
1: that in the mirror for the last Australian, few years.
0: Australianpodcastawards.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that one's decided by fans and listeners. So you can go to Australianpodcastawards.com and go to the listeners choice tab and you just put in our thing. I tried it out this morning just to like test it so I could explain it to you guys. So, obviously, Just the Gist has one vote already because it's me, (laughs) and you just put in your email and you search our name. I really don't think we'll win that one because we're up against people like, you know, you can vote for any podcast, and so Mm. people like Hamish and Andy and the Shameless Girls get, like, millions upon millions of listeners. So, I'd say they're going to get a lot of votes. Mm. I mean, we do very well numbers-wise, but we ain't no Hamish and Andy. So... (laughs) But still, it is the one where the fans decide. (laughs) So we could win. For those of you um, listening, funnily enough, because this is a podcast, I just looked directly into the camera and did a sexy wink.
1: With an incredible hair flick. Don't forget that. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, so that's just really exciting. We're really honoured because we work really hard on this. And like Mm -hmm. I explained in our Q&A Uh, you know, a few eps ago, I've had this concept in my brain for a couple of years now and it's sort of finally the last 12 months has come into fruition and it's really just sort of built into something that we love doing and that we're really happy with and so this just feels really nice.
1: Yeah. It's been such a fun thing to be a part of that an award was never something that I even would have considered, but that just adds an extra little cherry on top. Oh, shit, my sister's
0: (laughs) calling. Hold on. Rhiannon? Yeah? We're recording the podcast. You're live on air. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you gotta go. We got. I gotta get back to work. But no, I was just calling you because mum sent me a message. It looks like she's been hacked. Oh, yeah. I tried to click on that. Said, oh, Don't try to click on it, you idiot. Oh, shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> that was a very professional cameo from my older sister, Rhiannon. <laughs> Uh, if you're interested in getting any um, cosmetic injectable work, she is on Instagram at Rhiannon Cosmetic Nurse and can take care of all of your ugly wrinkled knees. So <laughs> off you go. Um, we deserved this award. <laughs> oh
1: god, polished professional. Polish but yes,
0: professional. it is lovely. Polished professional, polished professional. It's it's lovely. It's really nice, and um, yeah, it's just exciting. So thank you, Australian Podcast Awards. Thank you. Huzzah! Oh, we got to breaking news really fast because we wanted to talk about how we deserve trophies Mm -hmm. and praise. So, do you want to tell me what your topic is this week? Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) We do need to do that. Look, I very much felt like this week we needed something that was very sort of light and fun um, because the world feels like a very tense place right now. So, this is a truly joyful story that's all about rich, old white men getting conned out of millions and millions of dollars Mm -hmm. and I absolutely love it. It happened back in the 2000s, between 2003 to 2012.
0: Primo time for pop music.
1: Absolutely. And while we were getting down on the dance floor, the man who was known to be the most prolific wine collector in the world was exposed to actually be the world's most prolific wine forger. He'd produced and sold more than $40 million worth of counterfeit wine to these rich old white men who thought that they were buying these really... Rare, expensive bottles of Burgundy's and Bordeaux's. Um, when in actual fact he'd been mixing and making these bottles himself. So, this is one of those very sort of rare stories where the scammer is the hero of the story and you don't feel at all problematic about rooting for the criminal who's technically doing the wrong thing.
0: This is basically a story about a bunch of rich people who say that they can taste the difference between good wine and bad wine, but really they have no freaking clue because they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for what is basically apple juice that this guy made in his kitchen. Correct. Love it. So excited. (laughs) 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 Which I feel like talking about rich entitled men getting scammed is probably relevant when this episode comes out, because even though we just did breaking news, the headline of breaking news being us being nominated for an award, that's because we record on Monday. This episode comes out on Friday. Mm. So in between now and then is the US election. (laughs) So I feel like it's Whatever, I don't know where the world is going to be on Friday, but there's going to be some supremo breaking news that we can't really talk about because it hasn't happened yet.
1: Yeah, that is a really, really good point right now on Monday afternoon. Every time I think about what's going to happen in the next few days, my heart starts to beat a lot faster.
0: I know it's crazy. And how weird to be listening to this now and we don't know what's going to happen like so two, one of two things is going to happen. He'll win, mm. Trump, which will just be awful. And I still think he might because everyone's saying that Biden is crazy ahead in the polls, but this time last year everybody was saying that it was virtually impossible that Hillary would lose. So I just don't trust polls over there. Or two, he'll win, but he'll refuse to accept it and he'll just completely upend things and cause chaos mm. and... I mean, he's already encouraging his followers to, you know, go violent and take to the streets if he loses. He's already saying that um, he... Because he's refusing to accept mail-in ballots because he knows that he'll lose if he does. So he's already saying that by the end of the day, before mail-in ballots are counted, if he's ahead in just the regular ballots, he's going to declare himself the winner because he says mail-in ballots are fraudulent, which they're not. That's ridiculous. So it's just... it's. uh, The world is bracing itself for a Western culture election result in a so-called democracy the likes of which we've never seen And it's Monday afternoon and (laughs) we don't know what's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen.
1: So nervous. But when this comes out on Friday, when you're listening to this, whatever's going on, I hope that you find it satisfying and fulfilling to hear a story about a guy who stole from and humiliated a bunch of arrogant, egotistical, selfish, entitled, wealthy, white men. Can't
0: you just imagine, though, people on Friday are listening to this with like, Their headphones in and the world looks like after the bomb went off in Terminator 2 and they're just dragging themselves through like a desert apocalypse (laughs) and there's just like broken buildings all around and they somehow have some battery left in their phone and they're like the one last pleasant thing I can do on this earth Mm -hmm. before I die of radiation poisoning from the nuclear bomb Trump set off is to listen to this episode of Just The Gist. And we're honoured. We're honoured to have you. We're honoured to be here in your last moments.
1: (gasps) Uh, No need to question your priorities. You've made a wonderful choice. Mm. Um, I
0: myself just went and sat in the bathtub with 22 bottles of wine. That's how I chose to go. (laughs) So I'm probably already gone. You're you're listening to me from beyond the grave. How did you end it, Jacob? What uh, did you do when uh, the
1: bomb went off? uh, I would have just... Swam out to sea until I couldn't swim back.
0: <laughs> God, that's depressing. It's
1: very, very grim. This may be our Amen. last episode.
0: He's got the big red button and I feel like he would just throw a tanty and say, eh, I'm going to blow it all up then. Kapow.
1: Mm. Goodbye. All of us. Oh, it's genuinely making me feel so anxious.
0: So we I all mean, need a bit of escapism you, right now. If you don't, if you don't. Laugh, you'll cry. So laugh. So mm-hmm. um, oh, I guess we're on a um, roll with um, arrogant um, rich men. Mm. So did you see that Kanye West, for Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday, the gift he got her was he made a hologram of her father, um, Robert Kardashian?
1: <laughs> You're kidding.
0: <laughs> so he made a hologram of him, but it wasn't, doing stuff like so you know how when they they've tested hologram technology with singers like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston mm. but it is just video of, that they've recorded in the past that they turn into a hologram so it looks like you're at a real concert mm. but what Kanye did was make a hologram of Robert Kardashian giving a speech at her 40th birthday and he used artificial intelligence and like you know CGI to make it a new speech mm. so this hologram came up and it was like hi Kim I'm talking to you from like heaven. And I just want to say happy 40th birthday, blah, blah, blah. And look, I get that it's a nice gesture. I myself find it a bit creepy, but that's what he did for her birthday. But the funniest part of it, oh my God, Kanye. The funniest part of it was when Robert Kardashian says in like, what was a two minute speech? So he didn't have a lot of time. And this is what about 30 seconds of the speech was devoted to. You decided to marry the most, 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 most genius man on the earth, Kanye West. There were four mosts. That's not me exaggerating. And then he spent this whole part of the speech pontificating about how amazing her husband is and how he's the most, 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 most genius man on earth and how proud he was of her for picking him as a husband. I just, I can't, like the ego and the lack of self-awareness. And I mean, it's, it's almost majestic to have that sense of just, I, I, I'm speechless.
1: Wow. Now, questions. Do we know how Kim responded?
0: She loved it. She um, tweeted about it, posted a picture of the hologram. You can see the whole video of it if you, like, go to her Twitter or whatever. Mm. She loved it. She thought it was the most thoughtful, beautiful gesture anyone had ever done for her.
1: Wow. What a way to celebrate your wife by reminding <laughs> her that the best thing she ever did was choose you to marry.
0: <laughs> I love him. I love him to death.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's
0: it for breaking news. That's. I'm sure the world's an apocalypse right now. I'm sure if you look out the window, there's fire, but here's a great story from jacob that's it from breaking news that was breaking news
1: oh wow it's gonna be so interesting (laughs) to see how well this ages in the next couple of
0: days (laughs) so weird we're like oh it's weird recording this before probably one of the most historical events of our lifetime that everyone's going to remember Take it away, Jacob! Mike is fixed. Everything sounds amazing now. Hooray. Everything's fine and great. Okay, <laughs> what's this week's episode? Just the gist on...
1: We are calling this one Enological Evil, the story of the world's biggest ever booze ruse. And this is a story which I know you know about, but I'm curious to know how much you remember about this tale.
0: I watched the documentary like a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And all I remember is there's this guy who was making fake wine Mm -hmm. and selling it to people and convincing them and, like, selling it to people for... Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Money. Yeah, like I've yes. like money that I don't even understand that people would spend on a single bowl of wine. And all I remember is just funny scenes from the documentary. And this is what everybody remembers of people drinking it and going, mm, that would have to be the best wine I've ever tasted in my entire life. And it's literally mm-hmm. like a clean skins from BWS.
1: Correct. Yes. So, yeah. Mm. Okay. It is such a satisfying and enjoyable watch. Um, The story is a little bit bigger than what's contained in that documentary called Sour Grapes, but we'll talk Mm. about the doco at the end. And this is a great story for us because you and I, we have a deep love of wine. I love mm. a good champagne and I love a good Riesling. And I was even named after a vineyard, which not a lot of people realise I quite <laughs> literally was named after the Jacobs Creek vineyard because my Jacob's mom in the final Proic. stages of pregnancy <laughs> couldn't decide on what to call her baby. And she was drinking a bottle of Jacobs Creek and decided that if I was a boy, I would be named Jacobs. And if I was a girl, I would be named Johanna because Johanna was the name of the vintner at Jacob's Creek at the time.
0: (laughs) That's devotion to a vineyard. (laughs) That is, that's some fandom of some wine. True. And funny Um, that my parents are the alcoholics.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, Now... Our scammer this week is also the hero of the story. So this makes it quite different from the story I told last week about Tanya Head. Um, Mm. We really, if you're like me, are going to be rooting for this guy whose name is Rudy Kurniawan, and he had Chinese parents but grew up in Indonesia. He has an Indonesian name um, which was very important for him to sort of get by in Indonesia where they're very prejudiced against the Chinese. Mm-hmm. He had a very privileged upbringing, lived in a very big house, had servants, went to boarding school in Singapore, and then he went off to the U.S. for college, and that's where his story really starts. Once he'd emerged from college in his early 20s, he was kind of skinny, kind of dweeby, and he started getting into Californian wines. And the story that he would tell the media was that he sort of was surprised to stumble across this love of fine wines that he discovered over dinner one night. And it turned out that he was surprisingly gifted when it came to identifying different notes and different flavours and different blends. And so that's like when
0: people say this is a bit woody or this has undertones of peach or like that nonsense.
1: There's a hint of nutmeg in this and, oh, I'm getting a little bit of capsicum, all that sort of stuff. That all came very, very naturally to him. And he had Mm. a photographic aromatic memory, which meant once he'd tasted something, he could remember it forever. And if he ever tasted that exact specific wine ever again, he'd know exactly what it is that he was drinking. Mm -hmm. And he told everyone that he was completely self-taught and was just gifted with this incredibly refined palate that very, very few people have. And if all of that was true, then he could have developed a really, really fantastic career as a prolific sommelier, or he could have Mm. become a winemaker himself, or he could have even become a wine reviewer. But he had much, much bigger plans that he was working towards, which involved raking in millions and millions of dollars from some suckers that he had clearly identified would make an easy target. (laughs) A lot of wine experts do not believe Rudy's story at all, that he was just self-taught and that he had this natural God-given talent. They're sure that he was very intensively coached by people behind the scenes, but we'll get to talking about whether or not there was a team that was working behind him. Mm. Now, he started off just collecting and distributing cheapish bottles of domestic wines, and um, he sort of emerged in the relatively affordable wine scene in the early stages and then he wanted to graduate into the legit stuff. So
0: when you say he wasn't a he didn't want to be a sommelier, he didn't want to be a whatever. He is has decided to make money out of wine by buying and selling wine. That's Correct. what he's yeah. Okay. That's right. right.
1: And in order to do that, he has to sort of build relationships with all of the other people who are big players in the wine world yeah. and are themselves collectors and traders. And that's not an easy world to sort of get a foot in the door of. He needed to find some connections who could help him work his way in.
0: So it's snobby people.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah. And they would- normally be, I'm sure, quite reluctant to let in someone who they didn't really know a lot about their background and was very, Mm. very different from him. So, even though he was claiming that his kindred spirit that he felt he needed to be surrounded by were Mm. these stuffy, old, rich, white men, that seemed to be a little bit... Posturous, but he was kind of enough of a novelty and he was charming enough that people were willing to start inviting him to special tasting sessions that were happening. Mm. And so he was able to then, once he was in, continue to charm himself sort of deeper and deeper into this special society. Thankfully, his marks that he'd identified were making it kind of easy for him because they were congregating into these groups who were sort of collectively susceptible. If one member of the group fell for a trick, then everyone in the group fell for a trick. And these right. groups were sort of film, self-formed tasting groups that called themselves things like the Burghors and the Royal Order of the Purple Palate and the Ugh. Deaf, Dumb and Blind Society and... The most recognisable one is the one that features most prominently in the documentary, which is called The Angry Men. And The Angry Men formed their little group because they were angry about the fact that they were constantly going to dinner parties and taking one of their really expensive, high-quality vintage wines. And they would share that with everyone at the table. But then everyone else at the party would bring along just standard plonk that they'd bought from BWS.
0: So... These men or the angry, or the people in this group, I'm assuming they're all men, are just rich people who buy and collect really expensive wine and so then they just get together and drink the wine together. Is that yes. what it is? That's what the group That's is? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So it's so, like on Frasier, the wine club on Frasier. Yeah. Have you ever watched that show? Yeah. Like they yeah. get together and, yeah, mm. just drink snobby wine.
1: And in the most obnoxious way you could possibly imagine. Now, I mean, these guys had such enormous amounts of money because of the stock market boom that was happening at the time. They were raking Mm. in cash faster than they could spend it. So they thought nothing about the fact that eight times a year, they would get together. They would each take turns hosting. And when they were hosting, that was their chance to show off the wines that they'd collected over the years by serving it up to their friends. And they would always inevitably pour out 120 to $2,000 worth of wine on those nights that they would all just sit around drinking. And then the next month they'd do it at someone else's place. And then the next month they'd do it at someone else's place.
0: So no wonder it's so hard to break into that. That's like really exclusive, like Rudy or a nobody kind of breaking into a club or a community like that is like, you know, me starting to hang out with the Packers or like the Murdochs. Like it's really, yeah. Yeah, Like we just don't run in the same circles. So, okay, Mm -hmm. I get it i get it i get it i
1: get it so for these men they justified how expensive their wine was by telling the world that part of the thrill is knowing that you're drinking a bottle of wine that costs as much as a car, and there are very few people in the world who are ever going to get the chance to experience that. Mm-hmm. So the price tag was just as important to them as the actual smells and tastes and textures, and they fully acknowledged that. They only wanted to be drinking wine that cost fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars a bottle because Dick that it. just added such an unbelievably delicious extra layer onto it for them.
0: And are they just all? teaching each other about what good wine is. Like, in order to learn good wine, you learn it from people in these clubs, but they're just all telling each other, oh, yeah, this one's good. So, then they're Mm -hmm. all like, yep, it is. Yes. And then they, oh, it's so Emperor's New Clothes.
1: Very Emperor's New Clothes. And the power of suggestion is so relevant here because one person just has to say that they're identifying a chocolatey note and then everyone Mm. starts to recognise that chocolatey (laughs) note.
0: Well, it's like, how, you know how you hear every few months or so, there was a craft beer competition in the inner west in Sydney near where I live, which mm. is all hip, insufferable hipsters, and VB entered the craft beer competition, but just with <laughs> bottles with different labels and VB won. And, like, and you hear stories like that all the time. And then every now and again you hear, oh, this $30 Aldi vodka won one first prize in a blind tasting yep. at a yep. vodka competition. Like... Mm-hmm. Nobody bloody knows. It's all nonsense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that deep down, there's a part of them that knows that, which is why they Mm. say, but trust me, it just makes it feel so much more exciting when you know that the bottle cost as much as a mortgage deposit.
0: Well, that's because they know that the only legit thing that is actually true about the wine is the cost. Mm -hmm. They know it costs $30,000. They don't bloody know anything else about it, no matter what they say. Liars. Oh, my God, this is good. Okay. Tell me how they get embarrassed.
1: Such a big status symbol thing for them. Like every time that they buy one of these bottles and they do it publicly at auction so everyone can see how much they're spending on the wine and then they drink the wine publicly so that they can publicly remind the whole world World, that they are so filthy rich that they can splurge so much money. It would be a life-changing amount of money for some people on just one momentary pleasure.
0: It's so funny to me that like, cause you know that I only like wine with bubbles in it. That's mm-hmm. how sophisticated I am. And there's this wine here in Adelaide that I like called bird in hand. And it's from this Adelaide uh, vineyard and it's like a little bit more expensive. So like I'll usually get Jacob's Creek, which is like nine bucks. Mm. But then occasionally if it's like a special night, I'll get a bird in hand, which is like 25 bucks. And I swear to God, when I'm buying that, I feel the same as those guys bidding $30,000. Like I walk through the bottle shop, like coming through with my $25 bird in hand. Like I can't believe how much I'm spending. (laughs) So I've got to say, I understand how they Feel to Um, a certain
1: extent, yes, making
0: a point over getting an expensive fancy bowl of wine,
1: yeah. Um, And there are worse things that they could be spending their money on. Yes, they could be buying guns or something, but still it is just... Oh,
0: you know, donating to charities, I suppose. Mm. Oh, why would you do that?
1: Yes. So these guys, such worthy, worthy con victims. They're absolutely disgusting. And into their world came young Rudy and he was, like I said, a novelty for them. He was... Asian. He was young. He was very friendly yeah. and very warm and very self-deprecating and funny. And he kind of had this mysterious background as well. No one knew very much about him at all. All they knew was that he was being given a $1 million a month wine allowance from his family. Um, and he refused to talk in any great detail about the family and how it was that Mm -hmm. they got their wealth. But he started a rumor that his family did own the distributorship for Heineken in China, which is why it was kind of like they had a money printing machine.
0: It's very smart because that's what Anna Delvey did. The less you say, the more people speculate. So, you know, there was so much speculation about her being royalty or some, you know, ancient, like, important aristocrat family from Russia. And that's like with him. If Mm -hmm. if nobody knows, they fill in the gaps.
1: Yeah. And they didn't really ask a lot of questions. What they were mostly interested in was how amazing it was when it came to identifying wine. So he sort of came in onto the scene and blew everybody away with his talent and how refined his palate was. And he actually started teaching them a lot about wine that they didn't know. So he sort of became start off just this little novelty and then he kind of became their mascot and then ultimately he ended up kind of becoming their guru and also then cemented himself as a really major player when he started going on these really big spending sprees where he would be Mm. blowing millions and millions of dollars at a time buying up all of this wine and actually having a huge impact on the entire wine industry because he was starting to drive the price of wine up intentionally by overpaying for that wine. Now, once he was in with the crowd and he'd built a reputation, he had a very smart strategy for figuring out a way to get people to spend more on fine wines than they ever had before. So, Mm -hmm. like I said, people were buying these really expensive wines at auctions, which was this sort of gross culture that had emerged in the 1990s. It was this way of showing off just how rich you were in front of your friends and colleagues. Um, And... There was a place called Ackermarill and Condit, which is the oldest wine store in America, and they came up with a very smart strategy of holding their auctions in fancy restaurants and serving bottles of the super fancy ah. wine so that people <laughs> would get all licked up, nice and yeah, loose, smart. and then they'd be more than happy to spend way more money on wine than they thought that they would. Even the auctioneer would get drunk during these auctions and he would say all these things to try to goad men into spending more and more money on wine by calling them pussies or telling them that they were guaranteed mm. to get laid if they bought certain bottles. It was really disgusting and very aggressively masculine. Well,
0: it's like, it's like with cars. It's like a big dick contest, you know. That's right. It's yeah. like, yeah, Okay.
1: But this is kind of like a big dick contest for nerds because like all these people, (laughs) (laughs) they're all super, super awkward and you can tell that they probably grew up with really low status and now this is the chance for them to show people that they've gained status and they've chosen to do who loves?
0: You know who loves wine? Yeah. Caleb, <laughs> <laughs> He loves fancy wine. Oh and he's mortified God. that that I think my $9 Jacob's Creek sparkling is fancy. Anyway, <laughs> when you said it's a big tick competition for nerds, I was like, that's Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him.
1: Oh, okay. this could be a cautionary tale for him. All right. <laughs> So the auctioneer at this Acker place, his name was John Capon, and Rudy knew that he was going to be a super important ally for him. So he set out to impress him by organising a four-day drinking binge where they drank $250,000 worth of wine. That was his way of impressing Capon and convincing him to effectively go into partnership with him. So Mm -hmm. he had collected all of these wines and now he needed – Capon to sell them through the Acker auctions that he was running. Yeah. So, they effectively went into business together. Capon agreed to take a 20% commission for everything that he sold of Rudy's, which means that he wasn't all that interested in taking the time to check the authenticity and the legitimacy of the wines that Rudy was selling. He was just Mm -hmm. interested in setting it and selling it, sorry, and setting new... Records, which is something yeah. that he achieved successfully. He managed to make the Akamaral auction house the number one auction house in the world by selling Rudy's wines. Okay. Now, an important part of the story is the very clever thing that Rudy did next, which was start a craze for Burgundies. And do you remember at school when every couple of years there'd sort of be cycles of crazes that would come around and everyone would be obsessed with pogs and then everyone would be obsessed Mm -hmm. with marbles and then everyone would be Mm -hmm. obsessed with tarzos? So that continues to extend all the way through to... um, Middle to late boomer age, apparently, (laughs) because bored old white men can be made susceptible to those sorts of trends in the same way that young school kids can. Yeah. And burgundies were the target that um, Rudy chose to make. The next big thing, because they were relatively cheap at the time.
0: So, is that a kind of wine?
1: Yes. So, Burgundy wines come from the Burgundy region in France. For the most okay. part, they're just Pinot Noirs if they're a oh, red, okay. and they're a Chardonnay if they're white. But okay. um, it's like when you say Champagne, it's Champagne comes from the Champagne right. region in France. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They'd been really unpopular from the 1960s onwards, so they were fairly affordable, But Rudy's plan was go in, buy up as many Burgundies as he possibly could and then start spreading the word that people who are a true diehard wino Loved burgundies. So he made sure that there was an increase in demand while he was controlling the supply and hanging on Mm -hmm. to as much of it as he possibly could. And the value of a burgundy rose significantly. So in a 10 year period, a bottle that you could get at the beginning that might have cost like $400 ended up being worth $13,000 because of the (gasps) root
0: effect. Oh, Rudy's smart.
1: Very smart. He engineered all of this. He'd cornered the market. He'd played the yeah. game incredibly well.
0: And also made himself the most famous expert. So if he says this $9 Pink Jacobs Creek is actually worth $1,000, people will believe it.
1: That's right. Yes. And they were He's desperate so to get their hands on it. But yes. it had all become increasingly rare because it was all in his collection. He bought it all. And they started calling him the Baron of Burgundies, and because he owned so much of a particular type of wine called Romany Conti, they started calling him Dr. Conti. That was his, like, well-known yeah. nickname. But,
0: um, I mean, assumedly burgundies don't taste that good. And that's why they hadn't been popular since the 60s. I mean, that's (laughs) not actually even good. Oh my God. Okay. This is great.
1: Yeah. They had this really, really patchy reputation, but he managed to make them cool. So everyone wanted them. And so that then established him as like the king of this little subculture because no one was spending as much money on wine as he was. No one had Mm -hmm. as many Burgundies as he had. He very much looked the part. He was wearing custom Hermes suits and he was driving a Ferrari and a Bentley and he had a house built for him in LA that cost $8.5 million and he was throwing these (sighs) super, super lavish, generous parties and giving people very, very extravagant gifts. And so, he was the king of the wine world, thanks to all of these things that he was doing that were very ostentatious, but were really just a show. Because behind the scenes, he was constantly frantically moving money around in an attempt to keep his debtors at bay because he didn't really have a lot of money, it turns out. He was just moving a lot of lines of credit around.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah.
1: But everyone loved him. Everyone trusted him. And because he was the authority, he would tell everyone, look, I had to become an expert when it comes to spotting a fake bottle because I've bought so much fake wine over the years. I've been scammed, Learn from my mistakes by just doing what I tell you and only buying the wine (laughs) that I tell you is legitimate because I've gone through the hard yards. And they would all follow his advice. Like I said, he was their guru. And also his friends, because they adored him so much, they were so happy to lend him money when he needed it. If he said, I need to oh. borrow $800,000, they'd say, yep, sure, no problem. $3 million, yep, no problem. Same as Anna Delvey.
0: Yeah, that thing that rich people do. They're like, oh, I'm cash poor this month. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, no dramas. Like, yes. Yeah.
1: I've got some liquid I can send your way for sure.
0: Different universe. Mm-hmm. Crazy.
1: Um, and at this time, because he was reaching his peak, he was invited mm. to star in a TV pilot. And it was going to be following the elites in the wine world and the food world. So there's oh. all this fantastic footage that came from the couple of weeks that a camera crew spent following Rudy around, just trying to I capture on film. I wondered how
0: they got footage of him. Yeah. Oh.
1: So he invited the camera crew to come and see him when he was with his friends at these really decadent wine parties where they were drinking 200K mm. worth of wine.
0: But the arrogance, knowing he's a scammer and he's like, yes, come film me for two weeks. Yeah. ah, oh,
1: he was so deluded right up to the very yeah. end. He honestly thought that he was just never, ever going to get caught. And of course, his arrogance continued to grow as he went into 2006, which really was peak time for Rudy and for Burgundy's. So he organised one auction at the beginning of the year that brought in $10 million for him. (gasps) And then a few months later, he had a second auction, which set a new world record for biggest ever wine auction, which was $25 million.
0: Oh, my goodness. Mm. I've got to start convincing people Jacob's Creek is worth more than it is. (laughs) (laughs) At least the pink sparkling rosé that I like. Buy it all and
1: sell it. <laughs> what, a, what sort of wine does Caleb collect?
0: Oh, dear. I don't even really understand. Like, I wish I could show you right now. It's there's reds everywhere. Lots of reds. He likes reds. Mm. He, he'd go to like wine shows. Like one of uh, the first things we did together was he took me to the Cellar Door Festival here in Adelaide where you just, they give you a glass when you walk in and Mm. you just walk around all day testing people's wines. But I just kind of walked off by myself to find the only places serving sparkling in the whole bloody place. (laughs) um, (laughs) But he buys like boxes and Mm -hmm. if there's a good deal on something expensive, he'll get it. Or like, he just, I don't understand the difference, but he says he does.
1: And is he keeping it to sell it or to drink for special occasions? No, to
0: drink, to drink. He's not, he's not like collecting to sell. He's just like, you know, if there's a, he'll look up a wine and look up the information on the wine and it will say, you know, buy it now and it's best to drink in 2024. Mm -hmm. And so then it's just here until then. Right. He bought this bottle of, he bought this box of um, six wines that I think was quite expensive, but he got a good deal on it. And he ordered it to my house in Sydney when he was staying there. And then he left it there when he came back to Adelaide because it was quite heavy to bring back with all his other stuff. And um, since I've been here in Adelaide and my family's been coming and going using my apartment, all the wine's gone. <laughs> 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 so she can't leave wine when my mother's there and my 18-year-old niece has been going there with her friends. I was oh, like, that no. wine's gone. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah I because I don't drink red and I don't drink white unless it has bubbles so it's strange I'm constantly in this house surrounded by all this wine and I have no interest in drinking any of it mm. but um there it all is I'll just go to the bottle Oh, get my Get my pink sparkling, or if I'm feeling fancy, my bird in hand, (laughs) special occasions. (laughs) Okay, back to the story.
1: But that's a really good point that some people, like Caleb, they collect the wine because they want to drink it. A lot of these people Mm. who are spending, like I said, $25 million on wine at an auction, they're buying it because it's an investment that they're going to keep and they will just sit on it while it increases in value. And then their plan is that they'll then sell it on. Okay, so these auctions got Rudy a lot of attention. It made the LA Times want to do a feature on him, but it also brought him to the attention of a lot of folks who were in the wine world who started to get a bit suspicious about him. So independently of each other, they all started to investigate the mysterious and very talented Mr. Rudy. And the first guy that started investigating him was a guy called Bill Coke. And... Have you heard of the Koch family? Yeah, they're like uh, one of the
0: richest families in America and they've donated a lot to very conservative Republican causes Are basically thought of to be human devils. That's right,
1: yes. Yeah. But he's not really one of the truly evil ones. He's the awkward sort of eccentric younger brother who spends all of his time collecting things, including wine. And he decided that he needed to run a major audit on his enormous wine collection when he found out that he'd bought a few fakes. So he'd bought three bottles that were supposed to have belonged to Thomas Jefferson once upon a time. And he was absolutely (laughs) outraged when he found out that they were actually quite obvious fakes that he'd dropped $100,000 a bottle on.
0: And so was that like just someone literally got a bottle, threw some dust on it? Did that thing you do in primary school where you burn the edges of a piece of paper to make it look really old, and then they were like, "Bam, Thomas Jefferson, hundred thousand dollars, please." Like that's pretty much what it was.
1: Pretty much, these um, collectors oh in God. Germany came public and said, "We've had these bottles of wine that belong to Thomas Jefferson. Look, they've got T.J. engraved on the glass, so they're, they're legit." Very dusty. <laughs> 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 um, so he just hated the fact that he'd been tricked and he'd been cheated So he brought in these specialists to audit his collection And he, <laughs> between the cork experts, glass experts and glue experts That went through every bottle he owned He found out that he had $4 million worth of counterfeit wine in his collection 400 of the bottles <gasps> that he had were total were fakes. fakes. <laughs>
0: And were any of them from Rudy?
1: Yes. More than a few of those bottles were fakes that he'd bought from Rudy. Oh, and so okay. Bill Coke, more money than sense, he launched a very yeah. public crusade to shut down counterfeiters and he spent a total of $40 million of his $2 billion fortune seeking revenge against counterfeiters.
0: Wait, so how much did you say was fake in his collection?
1: $4 million. Then, so, he
0: spent 10 times that much yep. mm-hmm. to go after people because they made him feel embarrassed. Yes. This is how... got men not being able to handle feelings of shame mm-hmm. is such a huge problem in society. Oh, my God. And
1: it's such a big part Dude. of this little subculture. It's incredible how closely connected men's egos are to their yes. wine collections.
0: You would literally spend 10 times the amount you lost... Just to be like, but my dick isn't small. I'm a big man. I'm a mess. Bloody hell. Okay. He
1: was very, very motivated to get revenge. And Rudy was his number one. Nemesis. He couldn't prove that Rudy knew that he was selling fakes when he sold them to Bill, but he just smelled a rat. So, he hired an ex-CIA private investigator to try to find out everything that he possibly could about Rudy. Mm. And at the same time, the FBI started investigating Rudy because they'd been getting more and more reports about people having been duped into buying these really expensive bottles of fake wine. And they knew that there were massive amounts of money that were moving around at these auctions. And more often than not, it turned out that Rudy was connected to all of these fakes. And so, they started subtly, quietly looking into him in as much detail as they could. And yeah. also, a guy called Laurent Ponceau um, got involved because he had a very sort of personal connection to the things that Rudy was doing. He was the head of the Domaine Ponson in Burgundy. So, this is one of the most well-respected... I want to say house wines, wine houses. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell what we order off the menu. <laughs> Wine uh, houses. Yes.
1: And he knew that house's history very, very well. Um, he'd found out that this Rudy guy was selling a lot of vintage bottles of Ponceau. And he also knew that Rudy had done a lot to jack up the price of a Ponceau Burgundy. So, he was curious and he to was know. he was like,
0: but wait, I make all of those. So yes, Exactly. My family has
1: been making these wines for the last hundred and something years. I'm really interested to know why he's managed to jack up the price so much and how he's done it. So because he was curious, someone pointed out to him, well, look, there's an auction coming up pretty soon where Rudy's going to be auctioning a whole lot of wine, including a bunch of yours. And so Ponceau checked out the catalogue and what he could see immediately were that these were very, very clearly fakes. These were (gasps) bottles that were claiming to be from vintages that never existed. And this was Rudy's really big swing by saying that he had Ponceau bottles that say came from 1929 was, it was a big gambit that was, actually paying off, people wanted to buy a bottle of wine from nineteen twenty-nine because they'd never tasted that particular type of wine from nineteen twenty-nine. And yeah. there's a good reason for that they didn't start producing that wine until nineteen
0: thirty-four. <laughs> Uh-oh. And there were
1: multiple examples of this where there were bottles of wine claiming to be from 1945 when that particular wine didn't go into production until 1982. And all of this.
0: So, in order to try and create something rare, he had to make it up from a different time. But. Because he's making it up. I mean, it's rare because it doesn't exist. So that's, yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. Yes. And people. I
0: can see why he was doing it, but that co- he couldn't have thought that was going to last long without getting caught.
1: I know. This is where the massive amount of arrogance comes in here. And he was just trusting the fact that no one was going to do their research and figure out that. This was a type of wine that actually did not exist. All he was counting on was the fact that for the people who wanted to buy this wine, it was going to be such a big flex for them to be able to say to their friends, I spent $20,000 on a 1929 bottle of Ponceau and show off to all of the people that they knew who would be impressed by that sort of thing, um, because that was something that was going to be totally impossible for any of them to ever do. Anyway, Ponceau wanted to find out more. So, off he went to New York. He really wanted to meet Rudy and he was determined he was going to shut this auction down. So, he turned up at the auction. It was the usual wild affair with everyone drinking copious amounts of very expensive wine. And when the Mm. lot of Rudy's Ponceau stuff came up for sale, Ponceau did this massive cliched, I object from a wedding movie. (laughs) type thing and he shut the auction down and pointed out to the head of the auction house these are very obvious fakes and they were withdrawn from sale which was very embarrassing
0: so like in front of the whole auction in front of everyone he was like Mm -hmm. My family makes this wine. These are fakes. Mm -hmm. This is a sham. (gasps) Oh, scandal. It was surprisingly
1: controversial. People were actually really, really annoyed because they were so desperate to buy these wines and to taste these super, super rare vintages. And people still wanted to be able to buy this lot.
0: Even after they've been told it's fake. (laughs) Yes. It was
1: really hard to convince them.
0: Anyway, they didn't
1: go up for sale. Ponceau approached Rudy, asked him, did you know that these were fake? Rudy, of course, said, no, I had no idea. And Ponceau said, well, look, let me take you to lunch tomorrow. I want to find out a little bit more. And so he arranged to have a conversation with him. And all Rudy would tell him was, I can't remember who sold those bottles to me. I'll find out when I get back to Los Angeles. Just wait until then and I'll be able to give you a name. Mm -hmm. And so back he went to LA and you'd think that this would have sort of scared him a bit and he would have slowed down, but no, he kept buying and he kept selling and he kept living large, buying art and buying real estate and buying cars (laughs) over the next couple of months, throwing more of his lavish parties. And people were comparing him to the great Gatsby because he was just living this really, really opulent lifestyle and people still really wanted to be around him. But- Ponceau was not going to let go. He kept investigating Rudy and he forced Rudy to give him that name that he'd promised him. Rudy gave him a made up name and a made up phone number. So then Ponceau went, right, I'm just going to start digging myself. And off he went to Asia to start trying to track down who these people were who were involved in this fraud. At the same time, Coke's team found out more than enough to get Rudy deported, but that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to trap him selling fake wine knowingly. And they also wanted to try to figure out just how deep this operation ran. And the FBI was closing in because they knew that he was a big fat fraud and they just weren't going to mm-hmm. rest until he'd been stopped. Um, they wow.
0: So he's really, he's getting cornered at this point. Oh, yeah. it's, it's all, all very, him. yeah, they're circling. Okay. Yes.
1: Um, and at this stage, the FBI figured out as well that yes, he was in lots of debt and he was borrowing from one person to pay off another but they also found out that he was buying a whole lot of french wax and a whole lot of antique paper and a whole lot of vintage wine bottles
0: you mean to to make it fake
1: that's right yes ah! <laughs>
0: Okay, yes, yes. Please tell me he's doing that thing that you do for art projects where you get ground coffee and you rub it on the paper and make it look really old. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah,
1: he was literally rubbing dirt into labels that he'd printed himself (laughs) to make them look aged. (laughs) Yes. All right, but we'll get to all of that. In the meantime, he started making things quite difficult for himself and this is something that started... From the very beginning, he was making sure that whenever he went to a wine tasting party or whenever he went to a restaurant, he would have people send the empties to his house. And he said that it was Mm -hmm. really important to him that he kept those empties because he would write down the names of the people that he drank the wine with, where they drank it, when they drank it, and the sort of experience that they had. He just said he was a very sentimental person like that.
0: Yeah, like collecting empty bottles as mementos of the occasion. That's right. Um, That's believable. I mean, if I drank a really expensive bowl of wine, I'd probably want to keep it because wouldn't you? Like, Yeah. I feel like I would, yeah. You
1: know. They're his or people were willing to give them to him. So, yeah, it was just sort of a standard thing that he did, particularly when he went to his favourite restaurant in New York called Crew. They would always happily ship his bottles back to L.A. for him. But one Mm -hmm. day, Crew sent a shipment after a particularly opulent party that he'd had and when the bottles arrived, all but two of them were smashed to smithereens and he had (gasps) a massive tantrum and really lashed out very badly with a lot of, anger and aggression at the manager of Crew. And Mm -hmm. the team at Crew said, look, we are incredibly, incredibly sorry, but look, it's never going to happen again because we're going to implement a brand new policy and we're no longer going to be sending people their empties at all forever. Um, We're just Uh going to destroy all of the empty bottles, which... Really did throw a big spanner in the works for his whole operation because he needed those empty bottles, as we're going to see at the end when we find out what it is that he was doing with them. You can probably piece that together yourself (laughs) by now, I'm sure. Um, And then in 2009, Bill Coke made his big move and he sued Rudy for knowingly selling him fake wine and revealed to the Mm -hmm. public this guy knew that he was planning to sell all of this wine. He currently has things that are up for auction steer clear of him. And he had started making some pretty sloppy mistakes, like the things that Rudy was trying to sell had typos on the labels and they were... products that had never, ever been put into production at all. Um, and even though Bill Coke had a whole lot of evidence, it still wasn't enough to sort of put forward a conclusive case. So it all dragged on for about two years. and in the Yeah, end, can I
0: ask, at this point, like with Bill Coke has said something, he's had this embarrassment at that auction. Um, are people st- still believing him? I mean, at least the guys with the biggest egos, or are people backing away from him at this point?
1: More and more people are starting to back away from him because more and more people are finding out that he has sold them a fake. And it's kind of a once-burnt-twice-shy scenario. Yes, yes. And so many people in the wine community had been buying his fakes and then finding Uh, it out. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But... He was very gracious. Anytime someone found out that they'd bought a fake from him, he was more than willing to take it back and give someone a refund, which was why- Coke's case couldn't actually pin him at all because his defense was just, I didn't know I was selling fakes. And anytime anyone's found a fake, I've given them their money back. So he mm-hmm. kind of got off scot-free there, but it did tarnish his reputation to the point that the Acker auction house backed away from him completely and said that they just were not going to sell him any more wine. Because, But at
0: this point, he could still just say, oh, I was defrauded. Like I, It was an accident. He, at this point, Mm-hmm. He could still feasibly not have done it on purpose.
1: Yes, and that was even
0: if people think he suck he sucks and he sold them fakes. He still, you know, they just yeah. still don't know that he's okay. I getcha. you.
1: Yeah, but he was still a liability. So he owed the yes, Acker exactly. Auction House eighteen million dollars in refunds <laughs> that he had promised to him of the thirty five million dollars that he'd made from those auctions. He was still finding marks. There were still people who wanted to buy wines from his collection. And there was one guy who actually bought $7 million worth of wine from Rudy privately. And all of that turned out to be fake. And... (laughs) There were still auction houses out there who were willing to sell Rudy's wine for him because they were just interested in making the commission. So, they were willing to take a gamble on him anyway. He kept making more and more sloppy mistakes. And because the internet was starting to become more of a thing and there were online wine communities that were forming, they were all warning each other and actually posting, hey, I've just seen that Rudy's trying to sell this wine. The wax is the wrong colour. I've just seen he's trying to sell this one. Check out the inconsistent consistencies in the labels here. So people, the community was sort of wising up to him and the FBI started to get really serious. They tapped his phone. They started interviewing all of his friends repeatedly to see if their stories were consistent or not. But because he was so deluded and thought he was so bulletproof and this whole operation was airtight, he just didn't take any of it seriously. He'd just tell his friends, Mm. look, dude, don't worry. I've got everything under control. And so you can imagine his shock when in 2012, early one morning, the FBI came knocking on his door and he stumbled out of bed wearing his gym Jams and wiping the sleep out (laughs) of his eyes. And there were all of these federal agents who swarmed into the house and they could not Believe the things that they found there He had not tried to hide Anything at all All over the house, every single room There was all the paraphernalia that you would need <gasps> To make very sophisticated Counterfeit wine. There were
0: bottles and glue and paper and (laughs)
1: thousands and thousands of counterfeit wine labels and the printer that he used to make those labels. A whole lot of empty um, wine bottles, like I said, some of them vintage, some of them frauds. He had corking tools and uncorking tools. He had wax seals. He had wine crates, everything that you could possibly need. And the whole place was chilled like a wine fridge. And in the bedrooms for him and for his mother, they just had a space heater each to keep them warm throughout the night. But the entire place was chilled because there was so much wine in the place. And a lot of that wine were blends that Rudy was making himself. So he took a lot of pride in trying to make sure (laughs) that the wines that he was selling tasted as close as possible to the real deal. And he would get a whole bunch of domestic Californian wines and mix them in this sort of alchemical process to try to make them taste like a vintage Burgundy or a vintage Bordeaux. And he wanted to get as close as he possibly could because he had that super refined talent. That was obviously his way of sort of Mm. putting it to, some sort of artful use.
0: So he's just he's just mixing things together. That's right. Yeah, making and these And then he's little just got a bunch cocktails. of bottles. Bunch of bottles, a bunch of labels and probably a big screen TV with an episode of Art Attack on replay about how to make things look old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then he just got some potions and some juice and probably chucks in some nutmeg and some whatever and off he go. And he's literally making it. So, he's not even using other wines mm-hmm. and just he's making his own blends. Yeah. Well,
1: there's a How few- didn't he just
0: become a winemaker?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because
0: scammers never go the legitimate route ever. Of course he wouldn't just become a winemaker. That'd take work and time.
1: Yeah, we've learned this. Um, We'll get to talking about the different methodologies that he used But the important thing to note here is that when the FBI busted him They thought that he was just selling fakes that he was getting from someone Mm. else They had no idea until this point that he was actually making the fakes So this was Mm -hmm. headline news Um, It did get a lot of publicity, but Rudy's friends and his clients They just did not want to believe that their sweet little baby Rudy Could have ever done them dirty in the way that he had um, because he was their friend. He was, yes, their dealer, but he was also their teacher and he was their mascot. And...
0: But I think it's not so much they don't want to believe their friend screwed them over. It's you don't want to believe that you're so stupid that something he sold you that he made in his kitchen sink, you paid $50,000 for, you idiot. Yeah.
1: All of he them. made that
0: in his bathtub. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> basically prison wine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, they all thought they were smarter than this. So their egos yeah. took this so massive, to massive hit. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them, right up until 2016, were still saying, I just don't believe that Rudy did this. I think he was set up in some way. I can't explain why he had the labels. I can't explain why he had the bottles. But I just know that Rudy would never ever do this. And also, I. I know fine wine and I'm mm. not that easy to trick. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I tasted it and it was definitely a fine wine
1: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> made in Rudy's toilet. <laughs>
1: <gasps> uh, but the FBI did believe that he was making these forgeries. And so they charged him, they put him in jail, gave him no chance of bail because he was a flight risk. And then when he went to trial, he, of course, pled not guilty. And he worked with his attorneys to come up with a defense case. So their defense pivoted on a few different arguments that they were making. The first being that Yes, Rudy did have those things because sometimes he liked to recondition a bottle before he would sell it by just putting on a fresh new label just to make it look better. Uh It was just about aesthetics. Uh, It was real wine, but he was just relabeling it. And... Also, yes, he was really good when it came to mixing a collection of Californian wines and making the little mix that he made taste just like a 60-year-old French wine. And at the end of the day, is that a crime? Because what's the difference? It's all grapes. Mm. He's making something that tastes like the real thing. He might as well sell it for the price of the real thing. That's
0: surely that's a fair argument.
1: not so bad
0: I I think that's a fair argument but yeah okay
1: agree with that another of their arguments was poor Rudy was insecure and he was nervous and he was just intimidated by all these rich old white men and he just wanted to hang out with them and feel cool so he was just trying to impress them and this was just his harmless way of working his way into their society
0: mm -hmm.
1: None of this was convincing, so they decided, "All right, let's go with an insanity defense." So they tried that, but then that was dismissed immediately. Um, And then I think the best defense that they came up with was saying, "Look, he could not possibly have done this on his own. We're talking about tens of thousands of bottles of counterfeit wine here, and he had to Mm. have had a lot of help. And we doubt very much that he could have been the mastermind behind this."
0: Is that well? That's is that true?
1: Well, this is where things start to sort of get interesting because I absolutely believe he could not have done this on his own. Yeah, it's and too yes, much. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we're talking like forty something thousand bottles of wine. There's yeah. no way that just he and his mother in that little house were putting with some
0: glue sticks. Yeah, yeah that's you need. That's a whole operation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, some of the things that he was doing beyond just the mixology that he was doing, uh, he would sometimes take an actual vintage bottle of wine and he would just change the label and thereby change the year, which would then change the value of the bottle. So, like, for example, one, if he bought in 1962 and relabeled it as a 1959, he would instantly double the value. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he would just go and get his hands on Clean skin or something just fairly cheap, and then completely strip and relabel that as a super expensive wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. But he sort of became most famous for the fact that he was making these blends that mimicked the real thing in a very convincing way because that was what he was mm. able to do to really trick the people who considered themselves to be true wine experts.
0: Right. Um, okay.
1: But Each of these different endeavours that he was doing It would have taken at least an hour of work And when we're talking 40-something thousand hours To do all of these bottles There's just no way No way, yeah I think that he was just the front man of the scheme who then ended up becoming the fall guy because he also doesn't really seem like the type that could be a criminal mastermind. He was notoriously disorganised. He was always late for social occasions, always late for paying his bills. He was very spontaneous and impulsive. Hollywood Jeff in the documentary describes him as being ADD.
0: I also don't believe that he even has that magical palette. Like, I know they're all saying, oh, he, you know... it must be true that he at least has that good palate because he was making those wines taste just as good as the real things. It's Mm. like, you're just saying that because you want people to think that that's why you got tricked, but the wines probably tasted like shit and you're just an idiot. (laughs) He probably has a palate the same as mine. (gasps)
1: Uh, He's a patsy It's all so weird, yeah So the theory is that there's this Indonesian mafia Behind all of this that have been arranging everything Ah. Because in the house they found out all these instructions That he'd written in Indonesian Giving feedback on the design of some of the labels that they were making He'd actually ordered labels to be printed in Indonesia And he was sending millions and millions of dollars to Indonesia So that's one of the sort of easiest guesses to make and Mm -hmm. also two of Rudy's uncles happen to be two of the biggest ever bank criminals in Indonesian history. Together, they stole more than $800 million from two different Indonesian banks back in the 90s. And one of them is dead. The other one, Uncle Eddie, escaped from jail by bribing the guards and then ran off to China, where he's been hiding out ever since. And China, of course, is the global capital for counterfeit goods. So, the theory is that Uncle Eddie has been making these counterfeits over there and then shipping them off to Los Angeles. But,
0: and that would make sense, like where his initial kind of capital came from. That's right. To get into the business in the first place. Yeah. They were backing him.
1: But the US government, for whatever reason, wasn't interested. And so they never investigated beyond Rudy. They were happy to just use him and make an example of him by sentencing yeah. him to 10 years in prison and forcing him to pay back $28 million to the people that he defrauded. He was the first person ever to be successfully prosecuted for wine fraud in the US.
0: The first person ever? Yes, yes. Mm. But I'm sure it's been happening for so long. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's an industry that's continued to grow as well, but it's very, very oh rare that they're able to God. track down the culprits. Yeah. It's really difficult. Mm. Um, by the way, <laughs> the, the rough estimate is that about 80% of Burgundies out there from before 1980 are fakes,
0: Shut up. But
1: they keep selling for tens of thousands of dollars.
0: Because wine snobs are idiots. <laughs> yes. You know what you need? Your $9 pink Jacob's Creek Rosé Sparkling. <laughs> I bet you it tastes just as good, if not better, It hits my the
1: spot. Um, it
0: hits the spot. So Rudy's- At the end of the day, it all hits the spot.
1: <laughs> Rudy's still in wine. Oh, fuck.
0: <laughs> Jail?
1: just gonna pour myself another glaze here
0: so what year did he get sent to prison did you say 2016
1: no uh 2013 oh
0: 2013 okay yeah yeah there
1: was the possibility that he was going to get out this year i'm not sure whether that's actually likely to happen um when he does get out they're going to be sending him back to Indonesia, because he was supposed to have left the United States back in 2003 when his student visa ran out. So Uh, he'll be deported instantly when he is let out of jail. Um, Yeah,
0: right back into the arms of Uncle Eddie,
1: mm -hmm. who
0: masterminded the whole damn thing, I reckon.
1: Start working on the next little scheme. Now, when they started selling off his assets, it turned out that about 5,000 of the bottles that were in his collection, they believed were real. So they sold mm-hmm. them and told people, we think that these aren't fakes, but we can't say for sure. And they sold. People bought them. Of course they were people willing bought them. them. Of
0: course people bought them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. They
1: did identify 500 of his fakes, which all very sadly were destroyed. Um
0: See, I, if I was ever going to collect a bowl of wine, I'd want to buy one of those as Mm. like a hilarious collector's item. I reckon they would have sold just for lols. Yes. And they just smashed them all.
1: I would love, so they smashed the 500 that they found in his collection, but they estimate that there's another 10,000 out there in people's wine collections. See, I'd want one. Just like you and just like me, there are people who want to buy these wines. There is a a really big market now to buy one of Rudy's concoctions because people want to taste the classic Rudy
0: counterfeit.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yes. The Rudy K special. Um, people want to be <laughs> a part of the story, but it's actually really, really difficult to track them down because of the fact that so many of these rich old white men don't want to admit that they were hustled by this young yeah. Asian guy and they don't want to admit that they bought a fake. Um, and for a lot of them, they just don't want to know. If they've already drunk it yeah. and they enjoyed it and they loved the memory, they have no interest in finding out if what they'd bought was a fake.
0: So they're like, if I bought a $50,000 bottle of wine showed it off to my friends, opened it at a party. We all said it was the best wine we ever drank. Mm -hmm. I do not want to know that it was made by Rudy in his kitchen sink.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. I guess that's fair. Stuck their head in the sand. (laughs) I
0: probably wouldn't want to know either
1: (laughs) if I'd already opened it. My take for all of them is you can't complain if you bought one of his fakes, then you Mm. got what you paid for because you got the thrill of spending the money in public in front of your friends and impressing people. You got the thrill of drinking the wine probably in public in front of your friends and you were able to impress them. You probably tasted it and thought that it was absolutely transcendent. And Mm -hmm. you also got to just revel once again in the knowledge that you were drinking a wine that 99.9% of people on the planet are never going to be able to afford. So, you Mm -hmm. got the boost to your ego that you paid for congratulations no refunds
0: yeah of course yeah but they would never look for a refund because then they'd have to admit that they're an idiot well so they just stick their head in the sand and keep the ego mm -hmm. no yeah except for the coke dude because he has more money than god yeah
1: and a bunch of people did come forward so hence the 28 million dollars that he had to pay back to those people Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, he has in prison. He's doing work in the prison factories and earning seven hundred dollars a week, which is the way that he's paying them off (laughs) bit by bit.
0: Wow, that's that's a lot to earn in prison. I thought people in prison earned like two dollars a day.
1: Maybe he's working extra, extra hard.
0: Maybe he's making counterfeit prison toilet wine.
1: (laughs) If anyone had know how, it'd be Rudy. Yeah. Anyway, so the documentary we have been referencing again and again is called Sour Grapes. It's on Netflix. It came out in 2016. It's made by Mm -hmm. two directors and they both met each other at Rudy's trial and one of them came at the story because he was making a documentary about Ponceau and his crusade to track down the person who was making counterfeit Ponceau wine. And they decided mm-hmm. that they wanted to make this story about this modern day Robin Hood, Rudy. And it's a fantastic documentary, which I highly recommend everybody watch because there are some mm-hmm. incredible characters in there, especially the defense attorney and the prosecution lawyer and Hollywood Jeff. They're all so really ridiculous on Camera, and they all try really hard to come up with their own sassy sort of sound bites while they're having their <laughs> interviews. I don't know if they've been fed Yay. to them or if they came up with them themselves, but it's so laughable and so adorable at the same time. Um, and you get to see a few of the wine auctions, which are fascinating.
0: I don't know if I agree with the premise, though, that he's a modern-day wine Robin Hood because Robin Hood takes from the rich to give to the poor, but Rudy Mm. took from the rich and gave to the Indonesian mafia. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not really... (laughs) I don't know if was the same thing, but, you know, okay. (laughs) He embarrassed rich people, which is the main thing. Yeah,
1: that's why we love him. Yeah. And, yeah, seeing the wine auctions take place is pretty crazy. And then, of course, Mm. there's the amazing gratification that you get to... Watch When you see Some of the people Who'd bought Some of Rudy's wines Who are still Absolutely adamant This is a real bottle That I bought from Rudy Taste it It's absolutely outstanding Isn't it phenomenal And then watching A sommelier (laughs) Smell it Taste it Spit it out And call it skunk juice (laughs) And then Looking at The expression Of dejection On these Rich financial Dildos Faces It's it's just Unbelievable
0: Amazing Mm. Oh, wow. So that's the story of Rudy. What's his name?
1: Korea One. Oh, my God. Korea, I already you forgot. You had it. to
0: read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had to look it up. I shouldn't have put you on the spot.
1: <laughs> Korea One. I even got it wrong. Korea One. Oh. Yes.
0: Ah, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love rich, arrogant wankers getting embarrassed. The only thing that could have made that story 100% perfect is if one of the people who bought the wines was Elon Musk.
1: <laughs> Maybe he was.
0: Maybe he was. Yes, he definitely could have some
1: sitting in his collection. There are 10,000 bottles out there.
0: He's definitely the type of guy who buys $50,000 bottles of wine. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. All right. So we give you just the gist. If you want more, watch Sour Grapes. Was there anything else you looked at?
1: Uh, There's a couple of really great articles that I'll post the link for, one from Vanity Fair and one from The Guardian. There's also a really Mm -hmm. good um, podcast, part one and part two, from um, con artists, and that tells the story really nicely. Um, And then there's been books that have been written about it as well, and stay tuned for Ponceau's book coming 2021.
0: Ponceau's book. That's definitely going to be a bestseller, sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Well, um, that's it from us. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, we are now both award nominees <laughs> at Rosie Waterland, at Jacob William Stanley. Follow Just The Gist on Instagram, Just The Gist Podcast. Yep. That's it, right? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Email us ideas or suggestions or how much you hate the breaking news song to Just The Gist Podcast at gmail.com. All right. See you later, fellow award nominee.
1: <laughs> Awards.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite season?
1: Awards. <laughs> Bye. Bye.